Hello everybody and welcome to Life in a Bubble with me, Oliver Dingley. Today's guest is a fantastic screenwriter, film producer and director. Not only that, he's also the author of a truly fantastic book called Shooting and Cutting. So today's guest is the brilliant Stephen Bradley. Stephen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Oliver. It's great to be here and uh, to be back in action after lockdown. Yeah, it's been a very, very strange time, a very surreal time for, for everyone involved. It has, yeah. It was weird. I mean, we, myself and Deirdre were meant to be filming in the Olympia for five one-hour show for Sky One, and that was early April. And and uh, if it had been sort of three weeks earlier, I think we got would have got it in the can. But unfortunately, it kind of it kind of crashed, and it's been postponed till February. But so that was a kind of big come down, I suppose. And then the sun came out, and we learned to kind of relax and take it easy. If there's ever and... been a time for the sun to come <laughs> out, it's been. Oh, I know. I think right I, now. I think the sun saved a lot of people's sanity. Yeah, and now slow. Unlocking, I think you have a feeling that things are getting back to normal. Back into your normal routine projects. Yeah, well, Deirdre's doing comic relief, which is going out on RT1, so that's got very busy. So actually, it's been nice to have something to focus on. Oh, definitely. And so you're a screenwriter, producer, and director, and you, your work has extended over many years. But I just wanted to talk about how you develop your characters, because I always find when I've watched your work, and what I find is striking is how you kind of capture the essence of a character, whether it's Brendan Gleeson in Sweetie Barrett or Deirdre O'Kane, your wife, uh, alongside Sarah Green and uh, Gloria Curtis in Noble. The way you capture those important qualities, you do it really, really well. Oh, that's great to hear. It's really interesting that you use the word essence because in Noble, I was obviously making a film about a living person who had this huge sweep of, of a life from her childhood in Dublin through to growing up as a kind of in her 20-somethings in the UK and then going to Vietnam with this crazy dream and doing wonderful things for street children over there. So it was hard because it was such a big life and because I knew her as a real person and had read her books and had spent a lot of time with her forming the screen character, if you like. And I always said to people, I'm just trying to catch her essence. I'm not trying to show every event that ever happened in her life because you just can't do that in 90 minutes or 100 minutes or whatever it is. So essence is a very good word. You're always trying to catch the essence of a character. And the way you structure it as well makes it possible. I like how you're going back and forth between her journey from the 1950s until 1989, is it, when she when she moves to Vietnam? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's, you know, flashbacks and flash forwards are always a little bit difficult to, uh, to get right structurally. So you, you want the audience. The most important thing about that was she was played by three actresses the same characters played by three actresses and you need three really strong actresses so that when you're cutting back in time or going forward again in time the audience is equally happy to see each actress in the role I used a film called Shine with Jeffrey Rush and uh, two other actors in that playing the same character to make sure that you've got the same quality and luckily with Deirdre and Sarah Green who was a perfect match and Gloria who was playing her I think she was meant to be eight but she was actually only six when she played the part which was incredible and the three of them just matched so well that was allowed me to jump around the time zones. Not only fantastic actresses, but fantastic singers. All of them flawless. It was amazing just to hear the singing. I was looking forward to each singing part, actually, as yeah. the film went on. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and because Christina sings all the time, you know, singing has been a big part of her life. And she literally will break out in song in the middle of quite a formal meeting or something. She'll And, and it's a great icebreaker. And she's a very canny diplomat. And she, she knows how to break the ice and, and warm people up. When I, uh, when I break out into song, 
song, it has very much of the opposite uh, effect on people. Well, that would be true of me too. <laughs> so, the, the, the concept of this podcast, each photo is of an important time in your life, an important moment that's been captured. And it could be a happy time, a happy memorable moment, or it could even be a challenging time. But we're going to talk about the journey behind each photo. It could be a six-month journey, it could be a six-year journey, but we'll get to why that photo means a lot to you. So without further ado, please may you bring your, your, your first okay. photo to the table. Okay, and we're alternating them. And I've obviously seen the ones I've chosen, but I haven't seen the ones that Oliver has chosen. So the first one I've chosen is me kind of slightly bedraggled looking with a lot of hair, which is a feature of my life, and looking at the Sugarloaf in the distance, the Sugarloaf Mountain in Wicklow, down a long lane. And I'm quite far in the distance. And this photo was actually taken by the production designer, Packy Smith, who designed my very first short and we're on a recce for my very first short, short, which was called Reaper. And that would have been 1990. We were probably wrecking it in 1993 and we shot it in a storm on the top of the Sugarloaf on the 10th of January, 1994. And then some other interiors in my parents' house and things. I just sort of chose this photo because it's it, it was my first, the first film I made and all of the excitement of that shot by Kean de Butler on purposefully damaged black and white white stock because I was matching it to The Grapes of Wrath directed by John Ford and I had some footage to match to that and it was a great journey that first film and after being rejected by many festivals it was selected for competition in Venice and that was an incredible time and my career has gone downhill ever since. <laughs> it's, not a bad, it's not a bad first selection. I may always say, it's a great mane you've got there of hair. I know, it's quite mad, isn't it, really? I know, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I just did have a lot of hair. Um, and I was in my late 20s and kind of looking a bit scruffy as you do. So, so um, late 20s, how long was that process before... You that photo was taken. You were, you were in Trinity before, right? Studying law. Yeah, yeah. I, st I studied law in Trinity and actually I went, I was at Trinity with Ed Guiney and Lenny Abramson and we would see each other at parties and talk about aspirations to make films and all of that kind of thing. And then I got a job on My Left Foot as a, as a kind of assistant producer or assistant to the producer, I should say, to give myself a, a, a more lowly title. And that was just an amazing film to be on. So that kind of got me in onto the film scene, except there really was no film scene because that was the only film made here that year. That would have been 1998, I think. So I went to London for a while and I worked for Windmill Lane in London. And then I came back and worked with Windmill Lane briefly here in Dublin. And then in about 1992, I, I came back and I worked for Noel Pearson for a year in development. And then in 1992, myself and Ed Guiney set up Temple Films and we worked together for about eight years. And this was one of the first films, possibly the first short that we made. We made Guilt Trip with Jerry Stembridge in 94 as well, I think. And they both went to the same Venice Film Festival in, in 1995. So there were kind of times when, you know, we didn't, we were just busking it really. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we were just making stuff which a lot of the time is the best way to learn, I think. The longevity, I'm assuming, in an acting career and a filmmaking career, it has some serious highs, many lows. When you were filming My Left Foot, now obviously an Oscar-winning performance was <laughs> yeah, in that yeah, film. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but how did that open your eyes? Well, I suppose in, in one way it was kind of dangerous because it was all, because it did so well, it kind of, you kind of thought that everything can do that well, which is... Well, so you're on a high pedestal, store. straight up the blocks. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I wasn't really that naive, but it was extraordinary to see Daniel Day-Lewis at work just after he had, he had just come off Unbearable Lightness of Being and 
Room with a View and films like that. He was a hot young actor, but he hadn't quite kind of broken through as a lead actor, and that really took him there. But he was an extraordinary actor to, to watch at work with his method. But it was just, for me, it was just a buzz, the whole thing. You know, I, was, I had come back from a theatre tour in America, a student theatre tour in America, and I got straight onto that. So I was only, I don't know, 22, 23 or something like that. And it was just an amazing first art. And I suppose I learned about the teamwork of filmmaking and and saw the crew who were a brilliant crew at that time and probably would have been the one of only say two a-list crews together and they all had experience from around the world and they were just brilliant and that kind of taught me about that teamwork and made me realize that at that point that i probably needed to think about getting some production background to learn all the different facets of filmmaking before i started writing and directing myself and that led you to london that led me to London and Windmill Lane at that time actually had the franchise for TV3, which didn't happen in that guise at that time. So that was all a bit frustrating because there was a lot of possibility, but nothing really happened for lots of complicated reasons. And then I came back to work with Noel Pearson. And again, no film was made during that time. So I had kind of gone from working on a production to trying to find the next production to work on. And as I say, there was very little happening here then. It wasn't until 1993 when actually Michael D restarted the film board that things started again and actually myself and Ed were producers on the first film funded by the new film board which was Paddy Brunock's Ailsa written by Joseph O'Connor wow. and that was 1993 so we had a good run then after that we made about five films in seven or eight years as well as doing bread and butter jobs corporate stuff and bits and pieces of telly and, and things but definitely for me I was kind of learning on the job and that's that's the there are so many routes you can go in this business you know you can go and 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 train at a film school or you can just start a lot of you know in those days a lot of people worked with their parents you know they they kind of were skilled up by their parents that still happens a bit but to a lesser degree or else you could just do what ed and i did which was you know start making shorts and just learn on the job not everyone will be that clued up on on the film industry so how important are short films I think short films are very important in that if you want to do feature films or TV drama now, short films are a good place to start because they're a very good leg up and people can see what you're capable of and there are festivals to go to, lots of festivals to go to, or you can put them straight on the internet now, which obviously you couldn't in my day. So I think they're really important to give you confidence but also to give financiers and producers and other people involved confidence in you. And I think it's true that, you know, some financiers definitely look for people to have directed a few things before they let them do even a low budget feature. So they are, they're incredibly important, I think. They're hard. I think it's a really hard form because it's hard to make a standout short. So many shorts are made and so many shorts are applying for festivals. Or, or other platforms that they it's hard to make the good ones but the but the good ones do really stand out and it's also hard to narrow down a story into something so short yeah and i made another short much later with a uh, kevin gildee the comedian kevin gildee called no 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 which was just a, a visualization of one of his brilliant comedy songs and that was only three minutes the film board used to have a thing called short shorts and they all had to be three minutes and i kind of loved that restriction and i kind of think it worked you know tight shorts I, I prefer myself when you get into 15 and 20 minutes I find it harder if you go to a run of shorts 
at a festival, I find it harder to engage with the, the very long ones because they almost kind of feel that they're stuck between an hour of drama or something and, and a short film. So I think they're a really fine art, probably like fine, short stories are a really fine art, you know. Yeah, and the photo is obviously in front of a sugarloaf. What a country to be able to film in. The scenery we have here, we're spoiled. I know, and I think we kind of weirdly had kind of have sometimes taken that for granted. And now look at, you know, if you look at the whole island, you know, Game of Thrones using the north and Wicklow used so much by crews from all over the world. And then normal people being in Sligo and so much wonderful stuff having been shot in Cork and Kerry, whether it's indigenous films or Star Wars or right back to Ryan's daughter. And it is, you know, we are lucky and I think weirdly one of the things about COVID and all of that is is going to make us possibly turn to Irish stories and Irish landscapes and all the good things that are here a bit more. So it's definitely going to have some sort of change and re-evaluation and the interesting thing then is that people are definitely going to get sick of COVID stories very quickly. So so that's another aspect to it, how how much it actually gets covered. There'll, there'll probably be the ultimate COVID film and then everybody else will have, just have so. to shut up. <laughs> well, if this weather doesn't go back to being sorry, I think I'll get pretty fed up soon yeah, as well. Yeah. <laughs> So Stephen, we've had your first photo and now it's time for my first photo. <laughs> the first photo that I've decided to pick is actually of you directing the film Noble. So released in 2014. This film saw you uh, travel to Vietnam, Liverpool and, and a bit of Ireland as well. So I'll show you the photo here and if you could tell me a bit about the context of this photo, the team around this, because this film took a long time to make. It did take a long time to make. I mean, I was writing, directing and producing this film, which is an experience I probably would hope not to repeat because it's a lot of stress and work. But I kind of had to do it. That's just the way it fell out. And this is me ranting about something to my cinematographer, Trevor Forrest, who now works in Los Angeles and does a lot of kind of high end TV in the in the in the US. But this is me actually down by the river in Saigon in Ho Chi Minh City down by the river um shooting in a very difficult area actually in a in a in a tough district and I was shooting a scene where Christina Noble brings one of the wealthy businessmen who work in Saigon to down to show them the needs of the children down there and it's a kind of poignant scene in the film it wasn't easy to shoot down there there was quite a bit of tension for the film crew being there and that's always a difficult situation because you're slightly worried about the safety of the crew but it, it turned out to be all fine and I, I really like those scenes in the film I think they work well so there was Brendan Coyle was playing the businessman and Deirdre was playing Christina in Saigon. Obviously, she did all the all the filming in Saigon. So I have just strong memories of that day and it all being rather fraught and incredibly hot. I mean, it was always really hot when we were shooting in Saigon. We were shooting in, in January, which is a hot time. And we would have people on the crew who just brought around these things called Café Souda, which is really, really sweet coffee. And so we'd either be drinking those to give us a kick of energy and then loads of water and loads of Coke. And you would never have to go to the loo because you were sweating so much. So we'd all be drinking <laughs> gallons of liquid and never going to never going for a pee during the day. So the heat was weird. I mean, we went from shooting when we switched, we switched from shooting in Saigon to shooting in Liverpool in the middle. I think we had about four days in between when we all flew back and we maybe had one rest day and then we started shooting again. It's not time to get over no, jet lag. No, it wasn't at all. <laughs> and worse than that, it went from 
35, 36, 37 degrees in Saigon to minus five and a snowstorm <laughs> on our very first scene in back in Liverpool. It was it actually wasn't in Liverpool. It was near a place called Barrow in Furness, which is about two hours north of Liverpool, up in the Lake District. And we were shooting up some hills there, and that was the biggest. I mean, that was the craziest culture shock for us all. It gets fairly cold up there. And now a few points I just wanted to talk about the film was the cinematography is just absolutely stunning. How you portray the story, the visuals in all the different locations are, are absolutely fantastic. I just found myself being mesmerised by by how clear and how precise and sharp these images were well that was a good collaboration with trevor forrest and he was originally a stills photographer and before that he trained as a a fine artist as an oil painter and that kind of interested me and we were lucky enough to have the money to shoot on film at that time and we used three different stocks for the three different eras so we were able to kind of fiddle around with the look of of it on the film and i suppose we just had time to really prep it and you know going to vietnam was amazing because you get so much production value just from being there now obviously we had an art department a big art department who kind of took it back to look like a version of 1989 vietnam we allowed ourselves a few kind of licenses in terms of the motorbikes on the street and stuff but a, a lot of the artwork was good kind of period artwork it's a very built-up city with a lot yeah, of tall buildings yeah 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 gotta, i mean the very first shot and deirdre always talks about this the very first shot was a shot of christina arriving in a taxi outside the hotel coming from the airport the first time she'd ever been there in 1989 so we had all this 1989 cars and traffic and period stuff and period costumed extras and the streets were empty when I called action and it was just (laughs) amazing to see the streets fill with 1989 Vietnam and I kind of knew we were in a good place when that happened you know that's fantastic Uh, I actually grew up in a place in Yorkshire which wasn't too far away from this place called Beamish which is a village which is a Victorian village. Everyone there dresses up as Victorians. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's basically a museum, but a, a live action museum. Wow. And, and so the, there's a tram to get you around, an old Victorian tram. That's quite There's a, a Victorian sweet shop, a Victorian school you can go to the day. It's, a, it's truly bizarre. You dress up and you make sweets <laughs> and you go to school. You so get a maybe, strict punishment in my case. Maybe <laughs> after maybe after Brexit, Britain's all going to go back to that. So, so secondly, uh, also a bit of context is probably quite important around the character Christina Noble and what she has done in her life, and it's a story that should have so much exposure. It's fantastic you made that film to give it more worldwide recognition because uh, she was she was born in Ireland in, in the fifties, I think. Yeah. And she had a, a troubled childhood, uh, in some regards, a, a bit of a sad childhood, which, which no one should experience. Yeah, because her mum died when she was 10 and her dad worked at Guinness's and he had a drink problem. So really, Christine ended up looking after a lot of her siblings and sort of, beca- I suppose, in a way, becoming an adult at the age of 10. Then she ended up on the, the West Coast. Yeah. And then she moved back to Dublin, uh, where things didn't improve either. Uh, she had three kids, I think, after an initial first kid who was taken away from yeah, her. Yeah, that's right. Who, who yeah. I don't think she's Thomas, at, she's still never, yeah, she's Thomas, still never no, met she's him never, no, she, since he was yeah, taken away. Yeah. Uh, and then she she had a dream of Vietnam, which then led her to go to Vietnam. And she had a three-month period where she had to achieve something. Yeah, in the film, I kind of, I mean, all of it is true. I may i may have kind of tightened the ticking clock of the time that she had to, I, I'm not sure that I did, but there's a sort of ticking clock in the film where the Vietnamese authorities give her a certain amount of time to prove that she's going to be able to help the children in the orphanages there. And I suppose, you know, the film kind of 
uses that ticking clock to build attention towards the dramatic conclusion. And then, you know, obviously, again, you can't cover everything. So, you know, I don't cover all the years and decades of work she's done in Vietnam. I just jump forward and and talk about the incredible achievements where she's, you know, helped over a million people there in Saigon. You know, she has this motto, a little bit of craziness goes a long way or something like that. And also she says that because she was homeless, she knows what it was like. She was homeless at a certain period where she lived in the Phoenix Park when she was about 15. So those two things kind of make sense and come together. And then she's this incredibly talented, musical, funny, vivacious, as I say, cunning diplomat and manipulator in the right way of of people and getting them to do the things she wants them to do for a greater cause. So, you know, she's she's just had an incredible life. And, you know, she her work continues and the, and the Christina Noble Children's Foundation goes on and has... Something like a hundred centres up and down Vietnam. What's it like doing a biopic with the person there ready to see it at the end? Do you feel a lot, a lot of responsibility there? Yeah, no, she, I mean, I, of course we, we felt, and obviously Deirdre was very involved in this right from the beginning and it was her idea to do the film. And obviously you feel massive responsibility, but Christina was very generous about that in that she, the, I only showed her the shooting script just before about to shoot. And she said, oh, there were a couple of bits of dialogue that she wanted changed only because she would have said, oh, a nun would never have used that word or something like that. And then she made the decision that she didn't want to see a cut of it until it was finished. So I did show it the, the fine, close to final cut to her daughter, Helenita, and she was really happy with it. So she relayed that to Christina. So then that, that was fine. And obviously there's some very tough stuff in the film uh, moments that Christina might not necessarily want to relive so I think she kind of sat out for some of those when it came to the premiere as I said there's plenty of music and humour in it as well so it's a roller coaster of a film and her life has been a roller coaster of a, a life and back to you know, us hoping that we caught the essence of that because you can only touch on moments. Indeed. And you mentioned your wife, Deirdre O'Kane, works in that film as the main lead character. You've worked a lot with Deirdre over the years. Yeah. So when you uh, you work together, you obviously complement each other quite well. You said that story is close to her heart uh, and obviously she wanted to do the story justice as well. Yeah. How, how, how is that dynamic between the two of you two? I think it was very easy because as she often says, you know, we've been talking about it in our kitchen for years while I was writing the film and she was off doing stand-up and I was off doing there was another film that I tried to do in France that didn't happen so I think it's quite an easy dynamic because we know each other so well that you kind of you know what the stresses and strains of it all are you know I think possibly as an actor it affects her slightly in that she knows that if I have to move on on a scene then she's not going to get another take and I'm probably more likely to do that to her just because she's my (laughs) wife than if it was somebody else but you know, at the same time, you know, we were so well prepared that really it was a great experience. Um, I think I think the other bit she found hard was, you know, we've she filmed for four weeks in Saigon solidly in virtually every scene in, in, in that part of the film. And then I flew back to we all flew back to London and I zipped up to Liverpool to start shooting the next bit with Sarah Green and Gloria. And, you know, I, I think she felt a bit left out at that point. But, you know, that's an inevitable come down of having an amazing shoot in Saigon, which really was an amazing experience shooting in Saigon. Saigon sounds like the most amazing place to go when you shoot in a film. Oh, the whole of Vietnam is just an amazing place to go. You know, I mean, I haven't been to many other bits of it, but I'd, and I'd love to go to more, but... Yeah, an amazing country with an amazing history. And it's an amazing film. It really is beautiful. Uh, and for oh, anyone out there, definitely get it. Definitely uh, watch definitely it. Definitely buy it. That's Noble. 2014 it came out. 2014, I think. Yeah, yeah. And actually it's done like it's done very well in America on Amazon and all that. It's got a lot. It's quite 
quite kind of high up on the charts and all that kind of stuff. Well, so it's quite. Didn't easy you have a bit of an unconventional route with how you <coughs> marketed the film as well? Yeah, we kind of went the American route because it's kind of an important film for Americans because it's a view of Vietnam and yeah. the the remnants of the war and seeing kids that were affected by Agent Orange and archive footage in that Chris we used for, to create Christina's dream, which we intimate in the film probably came from her watching similar footage on the news. Oh, it's a fantastic film and it's time for your second photo. Oh, for my second photo. Okay, well, I'm going to use a very personal one, I suppose, and that's this one. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I'm <laughs> still, is, your, which, your hair looks great in that one as which well. Which is a wedding photo. <laughs> Me sitting next to Ed Guiney, actually, is my best man there, who... Um, produced this year normal people and last year the favorite and we had kind of worked together up until this point actually but the real reason i chose it is because it's deirdre making her speech after the wedding and at that time you know she had started stand-up in 1996 this was we got married in 2000 so she had kind of started getting into stand-up but had not reached you know the heady heights that she has since or even as very shortly after that photo she was recording shows in the olympia for DVDs and videos and and in Vicar Street and stuff like that. So so her career kind of really took up, off after that. I think at this point she had just filmed Paths to Freedom and okay. that was kind of around around that time or either Paths to Freedom or Fergus's Wedding, I can't remember. But I sort of chose the photo obviously because we were talking about Deirdre and you know how close our lives have been for a long time now and but also just you know the makings of a stand-up comedian in in her wedding dress <laughs> <laughs> so you've worked very closely uh, both both your your lines of work have kind of intertwined throughout the years how involved are you in her comedy well she started doing comedy because i was actually making a documentary at the cat laughs film festival or a comedy festival in 1996 and she came with me to kind of lug gear around and we were you know going out with each other then and she suddenly twigged I mean she was an actress up to that point did a lot of stage and a little bit of tv and things but she suddenly twigged that that stand-up comedy is about routines that get worked and polished but that they are basically the same routines so she started going to see two or three top American comics and realizing that although it seemed off the cuff it was just very polished script. And she kind of said to herself, I can, you know, I, I could do that. So literally when we came back, she started writing stand-up comedy. And then a weird thing happened, which was that a guy called Eddie Bannon, who was a stand-up, he lives in Australia now, who was a stand-up here. He was doing a documentary for RTE. RTE were doing a series where there was an established performer and a rookie in, say, stand-up comedy. And then there was, a, it might've been an established sportsman and a, somebody coming up and they did a whole series. So he was the established performer and Deirdre had her very first gig filmed, which is terrifying. And that was for the RTE series. And that would have been in the September after seeing The Cat Laughs in June. And then the following June, she was at The Cat Laughs as a performer and sort of, you know, hasn't looked back. Although when the kids were little, she did give up for a long time. And I think she always kind of is confused by that and regrets that. But the point is, we had little kids and they were a full-time job and she didn't want to be going out at night when you've got babies and you know she, she obviously did some filming and things like that but we had moved to London at that point and it, she didn't really want to she had been performing in the Olympia here and in London she would have had to start you know small pub gigs again and she just didn't want to do that so she took a big break from it and she says she sometimes regrets that but I, I know the reason why it happened and actually then when we came back to, from London in 2006 you know she sort of took up where she left off and things have been going great for her on that front since then. 
family from reading your book, it is very, very important to you. And that dynamic between your kids. How would you feel if your kids went into show business? <laughs> yeah, well, they're, th they're kind of threatening to. But, I mean, they're <laughs> at an age, they're 11 and 15, so I don't think they know what they want to do yet. But um, Daniel has started doing bits of voiceover and stuff for ads and things like that, so he likes it. <laughs> Listen, I just, my feeling with kids is, you know, you need to let them fly and do whatever they want to do. And obviously, you know, a good education is as much as you can give them and then you've really got to be supportive in terms of what they want. Listen, they see us in action and they do know that there are large amounts of time waiting for things to happen and many frustrations and films that get close to happening and don't happen and, you know, comedy gigs that are frustrating because there's half an audience or something. You know, they, 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 they kind of go on tour with us a bit on our jobs so they they, they realise that it's it's a roller coaster. Well speaking of frustrations I have one film to ask you about Wayfaring Strangers uh -huh. <laughs> on the pretty much the the 12th hour literally about quarter to six on the final day of pre-production um, on the Friday we were to start shooting on the Monday and Killian Murphy had just had his hair cut for a, for a period Second World War film and I had my whole cast and crew there. And uh, the production financing, which had wobbled a lot along the way, wobbled again in the final week for a completely new reason and just fell apart. And, you know, I had literally done explosive tests and gunshot tests and things that day with some of the actors in the middle of a forest and about three or four days before that, all the, all the final camera and lighting gear had arrived from Paris I was shooting in deepest Burgundy in the middle of nowhere. And my first AD brought me into a barn and said, look, the film is definitely going to happen. This is all here. And unfortunately, it didn't. And it was it was like um, Mark Garrity, who was production designing the film for me, said, you know, this is going to be a bit like a, a, a death for, for you and you're going to have to grieve it. And that was pretty much how it was. You know, it became clear that, you know, we weren't going to be able to go back to it anytime soon. Is there hope one day? That, that well, film the script is again. still there and I still like the script. And, uh, you know, I think I think what I'd really like to do is is hand it over to another director, actually, because I kind of went down that road. So I'm actually thinking, you know, I'm actually thinking of trying to revive it, but with another director who might be able to bring the money to it. But it's still there and we didn't shoot any of it. So, you know, as Killian Murphy said, at least we didn't shoot any of it. But this is a long time ago now. That's nine years ago. But it's a Second World War film. You know, it's still as valid as it was as a memory of, which was very much what it was, a memory of various characters and sort of efforts in the Second World War and it's kind of like a psych it's a, quite a self-contained psychological thriller mostly set in this big farmhouse so it's quite easy to imagine putting it together again it's just a question of giving it a shove really and finding somebody who wants to give it a shove and it's probably a question of trying to find a, a kind of close to A-list director who could bring the money and just let them off with the script you know and all credit to you for, for persevering afterwards and bouncing back from an unimaginable disappointment yeah no I mean that was tough. The only thing that saved me, and Deirdre always says this, I spent about three weeks, you know, drinking bottles of wine and ranting at the heavens. <laughs> and the thing that saved me was that I had written a couple of drafts of Noble already. And I knew how I was going to be able to finance that film. And I was kind of producing it myself. So I came back and started writing like mad again and going to visit the financiers and start to make all that happen. Wayfaring Strangers fell apart in August of 2011. And by June of 2012, I'd done about three or four more drafts of the script and I was in Saigon with my producer, Melanie Gore-Grimes and Trevor Forrest, the cinematographer, sort of beginning prep for that. So that was that's what, what saved me and got me going again. And I had been very lucky. I'd been out of the blue sometime earlier 
I had been offered some development finance by a, just a private financier. I had put it in kind of aside for Noble. So I, I was even able to kind of pay for the eight months in, in between the collapse of that film, on which I obviously didn't get any fees, and had developed money to keep me going to get me to Saigon. You know, ups and downs. It's a crazy business. It is, but ultimately you have Dear Javert as well. And that photo is yeah, lovely as well. Yeah. Right, Stephen, it's time for my second photo now. And this photo is, uh, I think you actually stood in Eason's, if I'm, uh, it says Eason's there. Yeah, so you stood in Eason's. <laughs> and you're holding a book, which is a very frank and honest piece of work. And, and in times, very, very humorous, but it also shows off a sense of vulnerability as well. It's a positive story, I think, in, in some regards. And it's a, a truly eye-opening story in others. So I'll let you describe... <laughs> What you're holding here, uh, I think everyone can guess what you're holding yeah. already, yeah. Having, st- having been standing in Eason's, but it's your own book. You're so right. That is Eason's. And actually, it's Eason's Dunleary. And I was in there today with the manager, Colin, who actually has, was incredibly supportive of when the book came out, as you do the rounds of the bookshops and whatever. So I'm holding, shooting and cutting, A Survivor's Guide to Filmmaking and Other Diseases, which is the book. It's a memoir that came out in October of 2019. And filmmaking and other diseases is meant to be a witty aside to the fact that in 2016, in March, April of 2016, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So this was the next part of the roller coaster. We had literally returned from London, moved the kids to new schools here, rented a house just up the road here. And we'd been here about three weeks when I kind of had a collapse. I had done a lot of the packing up and the moving on my own and driven across, the, driven the car across and then gone straight into a filming job here. And I just thought I was exhausted. But actually, it turned out to be uh, an incredibly serious illness. And I ended up having treatment on and off. I mean, pretty much solidly for the first year, 2016 and the beginning of 2017 up to May 2017 was sort of full on. And then after that, I had two more operations and some more radiation over the following, say, 18 months. So it was three years, three and a half years altogether of treatment with the most incredible team of medics I could have wished for. And I ended up being on the public system in Ireland because we'd just arrived. I hadn't done my private health insurance as so many people here. Most people would have private health insurance here if they can afford to to have it for their family and that that would be the norm as you know and your listeners will know you know in the public system it was just extraordinary i just got the 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 most amazing medics and the most amazing treatment and drugs that i discovered that i wouldn't have got like very advanced immunotherapy targeted drugs that i wouldn't have got if i'd been on the nhs at that time and it was a, a a crazy experience as described in the book the book alternates between the story of my medical treatment up to, I think it finishes in in spring of 2019, which doesn't quite cover the whole story, but enough for the book to work. And then little bits and nuggets of mentions of of past experiences like Wayfaring Strangers and things like that in the past, but much more, as my publisher wanted me to do, much more the experience of trying to get going again once I knew that I was going to get better and what were the projects that I was going to work on and why was I choosing those. And the publisher felt that that part of the story would match the personal side of the medical treatment. The book, as I say, alternates between those two things. And just on the medical side, it tells as much detail 
as you say, with as much humor as possible, even though bits of it are tough. And there's a lot of detail about the medical stuff in there. And it's a survivor's guide to filmmaking and other diseases. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. And when you started writing it, it was, was it purely just therapeutic writing it? Or had you any intentions to, to take it the next step and publish it? Yeah, that's very well spotted or very, very well intuited on your part. I did start writing it as a therapeutic exercise. I met a writer friend of mine down the pier, a, a, a very well-known writer, who said, you know, you need to write this all down as it as it happens because you won't remember it and you won't remember the detail and you won't remember the feelings. And I took that advice on board and wrote it as a sort of diary at that stage as I went along. And then quite early on, my manager, Jane Russell, sort of pitched it to a couple of publishers and Mercer Press and Cork got very interested and then gave me a steer as to how to change the first draft into a more personal and sort of matching the two halves of it. And that was great to have them involved and and steering it along and great to get it published because I didn't really have an expectation that it would be published when I first started writing it, as you say, as a therapy. That kind of turned it into a different beast. Did you find it easy to write it down at the time? Would it have been a challenging thing to write? I think I did find find it not easy. I mean, it's, writing uh, writing books is probably not easy at the best of times. I say at the beginning of the book, this book was written under the influence <laughs> of opiates, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, benzodiazepines, antibiotics, all this stuff as kind of a joke for, for the fact that it that it was. At times I was writing it when I, <laughs> the first drafts when it probably was fairly off my head on something. So it probably was difficult to write. But at, at the same time, I had decided not to do any internet research until very late on because I knew that my case was so serious. So in a way, it was kind of a a way of avoiding that, that I could just write down my case and focus on my case. And because I think some of the problem with internet research when you've got a very serious illness is that everybody's case is really different. Also in Ireland, what I discovered was that I got a very tailored, well thought out treatment program from about six consultants and you know they would have conferences about me and my case and talk about it and finesse the treatment and I think in some lots of other jurisdictions you just get a protocol if you've got this disease you get this 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 and this whereas they were you know shuffling stages of treatment and all of that kind of thing and this was a period of your life that spanned was it three years three or four years yeah and I was wondering how did filmmaking did it help in any way uh, with kind of the recoveries in to make a film for example it takes a long time to do and one thing I've got from the book and from sitting down with you is your determination and patience to be able to to wait did that help at all Yeah, it probably did with the illness in a weird way. And I think the medics were maybe a bit surprised by this. You know, I'm used to long term. Like we had the the idea for Noble in 2008 and we shot it in 2013. And that's five years during which, okay, you're writing screenplays and things like that, but on and off. So I was able to kind of at the beginning, they said there's going to be about 16 stages of different treatments or whatever. And you're just going to. So I was able to kind of map that out. And it didn't concern me that it was a year of treatment as long as it turned out well. And I could kind of get my head around that time scale partly because yeah development does take those kind of time scales so at least I was able to sort of adjust to that or something I think and in the book as well you talk about family not really telling the kids too much you talk about maybe the very early days where I think you went to the park trying to put on a persona that life is 
going okay in front of your children when when really you have this looming over your head and by the way i'm sure many people have told you this but the the bit where i don't want to spoil the book too much but the the bit where you get a bit of a blunt diagnosis <laughs> yeah and uh, which was very very early on and uh, he wasn't even part of your your no, close no. team yeah that was the only unex- unfortunate unfortunate experience we had the rest of it was pretty much great with all the medics and he wasn't a member of our team and he just kind of took a notion on a friday evening to come in and give us a diagnosis that our team were kind of saving up for the following week so that we could have a weekend restful weekend with our, <laughs> our kids and it turned into a, a nightmare weekend because you know we thought that it might have been curtains and at that point I was looking and feeling very ill and you know I was very ill and if they hadn't been treating me immediately I, I wouldn't have lasted very long and it was but, too late for chemotherapy as well yeah it was so my, my I mean essentially I had bowel cancer that then had already spread to a large secondary on the liver and later went into the lungs so it was too late for chemotherapy because I needed immediate surgery on the liver and I mean at that stage we didn't know all that we didn't know that that's how it was going to pan out we just knew that knowing that there was a shadow on the on the liver we thought that that's maybe where the problem was and to be suddenly told no you've got this other problem you just kind of think oh i must be riddled with it and this is really not good so that that was a terrible terrible time and deirdre was incredibly tough and supportive all all the way through it i mean she was funny when she made a speech at the launch of the book when she said oh yeah i came out of the book very well but he could have ruined me (laughs) um it's kind of a lot of the book is a tribute to Deirdre because of what we've been through for a long, long time, near, nearly 30 years together. And in particular, the last four years, you know, that was really tough. And she was working the whole time, you know, because she had to keep the family finances on the road as well as her own sanity, as well as not really telling people. I mean, we, we the world closes down into a really little bubble. So I found COVID lockdown quite easy because yeah. I'd been there before for a year in the last four years. You close the bubble right down and a few people know and the rest of the world doesn't need to know nor are they interested and I suppose people are shocked to them when you when they read about it in the book because they're going god I didn't know all that was happening because Deirdre just kept going on she was an absolute rock and her positivity and, and going back to that little story where you got a bit of a, an abrupt diagnosis she wouldn't let the doctor go am, am I right in thinking until he said something yeah, positive yeah, about the situation no exactly because it wasn't meant to have happened you know our medical team set it up so that that wasn't meant to have happened so she did she did just her instinct was no I'm not accepting that, that that's how we're leaving it on a Friday evening and we can't contact our medical team so he then you know his way out was to tell us about some case of you know these two cancers that where somebody lived a long time it was something i suppose of a comfort but at that time you felt like you know okay that's one case that's like winning the lottery you know that was the one really tough moment the following week we were back to our medical team and they were going listen we can do this and my oncologist came in and said to me you know we can we can get you through this is going to be really really tough but we can get you through it and that's actually all you need to hear then you can go okay tell me what i need to do and they say right these are the 16 hoops you're gonna have to jump through and there were a few complications along the way so it might have become 18 hoops and you just do them one at a time and that's how Deirdre and I kind of managed it we just went next 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 you know and the, the individual care that you received from, from each person within the hospital, how it was kind of tailor-made in some regards to, you mentioned about there's there was one woman whose job it was to kind of learn how people would want to be told, news that necessarily nobody wants to hear. Yeah. And it must yeah. be a, a very tricky job, how she does it on a daily basis. Oh, I don't know. It's... Exactly. I don't know. And I mean, obviously, um, you're talking about Anne White, who I write a lot about in the book, who is my coordinating nurse, and she co 
coordinates all the medics and the information between patient and the consultants and the team. I don't know how she does it. She's just incredible. And she was amazing all the way through. She was sort of the linchpin in, in making me understand what was happening and preparing me for each section of it, answering any questions that I need. And that continues because I'm still a patient. I mean, fortunately, my, my recent scans have been totally clear, which is amazing. But we still have discussions about what if this, that and the other. And also, you know, obviously on the book, she was kind of a medical consultant on the book to make sure I didn't make mistakes on, on that stuff. And also very gratifyingly has said to me that the book, you know, is is helping other patients in the hospital who are in, the, in similar situations. And I've had a few people come up to me in the street and go, are you Stephen Bradley? And somebody in my family is ill with it and with cancer and they've, the book has really helped them. And that's kind of been amazing, you know, because it's tough enough to sell to a general audience a book about, you know, about cancer. Most people and myself included before I became a patient <laughs> probably would run a million miles writing about it. And that's why I kind of stress that there's a humorous side to it and that lots of it is about filmmaking and that that it's not it's not an ordeal to read. I think people kind of fly through it and it's it takes you on a, on a very fast journey. It's a, a fantastic insight into your life and it is, it's an absolute pleasure to now sit in front of you and actually talk about it. Uh, <laughs> being a reader and going for the whirlwind of your life is just fantastic oh, to, to see you in full well, health. Good. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an entertainment, even though, you know, all good drama has ups and downs and it sort of fits the bill of, of being a roller coaster of a drama and fortunately with a happy ending so far. So Stephen, we're on to your, your final and third photograph now. Please describe the photo you're holding up. My final and third photograph is December 2015 with my two children, Holly and Daniel. Holly would have been nine and Daniel would have been six, I think. And I'm holding the Christmas tree and we're, we're um, over my shoulder and we're walking home to put up the Christmas tree. And I suppose that's just, particularly with kids at that age, that's such a great day to be, you know, to, to, to be taking a Christmas tree home. We were living in London at the time in, a, in quite a small flat, but a very cosy flat. The reason I chose this photo is because if that's the classic dad photo of, you know, young <laughs> kids taking the Christmas tree, the following year in 2016, I wouldn't have been able to lift a Christmas tree, let alone carry it home. And probably the same in 2017, I think. So this was me actually quite ill. I don't look ill, but actually pretty ill. My oncologist said that he thought my cancer, by the time it was discovered four months later than this, that it had been growing for 18 months. So here I am at Christmas carrying home a tree, unaware that I'm very ill with cancer. And yet it's a lovely photo because the kids look great and, and it's just such a joyous occasion. It was one of the things the following year that hit me most that I wasn't able to, to bring home the Christmas tree. A lot of things are put into perspective when, when you look at photos like that. How did the kids react to the book? So with the kids, as you said earlier, we didn't tell the kids that I had cancer until actually we moved into this house. So until, you know, until I'd been well for maybe 18 months, I've had a little bit of recent treatment, but nothing major. And Holly said that she thought she knew because she'd seen a text about an all clear or something, because we did have a big celebration myself and Dee when I got my original all clear, even though I had a, a subsequent treatment. And so we hadn't told them largely because they were coming to a new country and had new friends and new schools and whatever. And we didn't want to worry them because my sister had died of cancer, secondary cancer in 2002. And that was the only thing that they knew about cancer was that, it, that you know, they had been to visit Fiona's grave. And this was Deirdre's theme, not just with the kids, that she didn't want to tell people 
outside our tiny little bubble of friends and family that are, you know, that it was stage four cancer because people do have a, an assumption wrongly in an increasing number of cases, fortunately, that that's kind of curtains, you know, immediate curtains. So we just chose to try and keep the kids as happy and worry free as we could. And, you know, after my second chemo and in before and before my second huge operation in October 2016, we actually went to Disneyland in Paris with them. And that was a big deal. And so we were trying to do things that, you know, that would kind of keep everything normal. For us, that was the right decision. I mean, I know a lot of people feel you need to educate the kids about it. But 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 for us, because that, I think they would have been incredibly worried if they'd heard that word at that time and it would have affected their happiness. I think for us, it was the right thing. And then to answer your question properly, when the book came out, they didn't really kind of get it until they came to the, there was a big launch at Hodges Vegas in Dawson Street with a lot of people there, maybe I think 120 people there or something like that crammed in and speeches and whatever and then I think at that point they got oh this is actually something that's kind of a bigger deal than we thought it was. So Daniel took it off to school and read the first pages, a page on which he appears. And Holly, I think, has probably read a couple of chapters. And, the, you know, there are copies lying around the house, so they'll read it sometime when they're ready to read it. But like you said, the book is about moving forwards, uh, a positive mood f- move forwards as well. And your kids are very much a part of that. And, and I hope you, uh, once again, carry in some massive Christmas trees each yeah. year into the house. Yeah, I've carried, we, we've had a couple of big Christmas trees that I have carried because nobody else will carry them. <laughs> But that's always just something, a kind of a cliche of fatherhood that I enjoy. Yeah. But I mean, most of all, this conversation that we've had and, and talking about the book, it's just really, very really kind of, I really appreciate those, those moments and seeing that photo. Is absolutely yeah, well, lovely. that's great. Yeah, yeah. No, all of that stuff. And I obviously talk about my parents quite a lot in the book as well and living in Cork when I was a kid. And when you're writing a memoir, I think the things you cling on to are the, just the moments that you really remember in a really vivid way. And they're quite easy to pluck out because you find that they're things that you actually think about quite a lot all the way through your adulthood. They're just moments you remember. And you don't tell anybody about them, but you discover that actually you can write them in a book and they're something interesting to write about. Stephen Bradley, thank you for joining me. Within Irish cinema, the contribution that you've had through the early days up until contemporary time has been absolutely fantastic and it's been brilliant having you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me and uh, I'm looking forward to to sharing that book as much as I can actually and and many of your films. So thank you very much. That's brilliant, Oliver. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening today. Stephen's story is absolutely truly amazing and inspiring i really really recommend giving his book a good read I try check out some of those films as well i'll see you next time take care everyone look after yourselves and goodbye Life in a Bubble is produced by myself and Amma Adu. Marco Dwyer and Katie Hackett are the show's researchers. Michaela Maloney, Nicola Fitzsimons, Josh Balf, Anisha Cheyenne Rice and myself are the show's editors. And the show's sound technicians are Nicola Fitzsimons and Anisha Cheyenne Rice. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Take care. See you next time.